You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. Uh, so first off, Happy New Year, everyone. Um, and I wanted to get uh, 2020 kicked off with a uh, live recording of the Sustainable Business panel discussion that I moderated at IFTD. That's the International Fly Tackle Dealer Show. Um, from October of 2019 out in Denver, Colorado. Uh, the panelists I had were Dr. Andy Danilchuk, the professor of fish conservation at UMass Amherst, uh, Corinne Doctor, the co-owner of Rep Your Water, Steve Hempkins, VP of fly fishing at Orvis, and Oliver White, owner of Abaco and Bears Lodge. So in this uh, panel discussion, we talked about how um, Companies can use their business to solve the climate crisis um, and also, in the process, um, increase customer loyalty and, and, and basically make the business case for sustainability. So, um, hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies a sustainable business consultancy that improves the social, environmental, and economic bottom lines of your business. Profit sustainably. So uh, today's... uh Panel discussion is sustainable business. So, Rick Crawford is our moderator. Um, Rick runs a company called Emerger Strategies, and I've had the pleasure to, first and foremost, listen to a few of the panel discussions that he's had over the years with uh, AFTA, and uh, recently uh, was, I believe, yesterday uh, at the AFTA board meeting, he presented a, a challenge to the organization as a whole that we'll be looking at considerably um, with regards to how the entire industry can focus on sustainability with a, a true uh, set of goals um, that we can set some uh, benchmarks to and some key performance indicators to measure our performance as an industry as a whole. But uh, just some some real heady topics to think about that uh, if I look back growing up as a kid, you know, I just think of the kick plastic as a whole. We never had kick plastic. We never had plastic. It was just part of choice. Um, and now it's incorporated in so much that we do. So um, a simple thing is just to start there. But uh, I'm going to turn it right over to you, Rick, and thank you for what you've put together with the panel and, and all the efforts that you've already put forth. So take her away. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, first off, thanks to AFTA for um, letting me come and, and moderate another panel discussion and talk about things that are uh, pretty near and dear to my heart. Um, as Steve mentioned, uh, my name is Rick Crawford. I'm president of Emerger Strategies. We're a sustainable business consultancy that works to improve the social, environmental, and economic bottom lines of our clients. Um, the purpose of today's panel is really to talk about how businesses are already beginning to start to, well, to use their business to fight, to fight climate change, um, which is the single greatest threat to our fisheries today. Um, but before we 
I introduced the panel and, and get into that, I wanted to provide a little bit of context for you know what, what is sustainable business and what do I mean by improving social, environmental, and economic bottom line. So I thought I'd provide a few examples. Um, example of a social bottom line would be um, Flood Tide Company is one of my clients and they're 1% for the planet members and they also allow paid time off for their employees to volunteer for their local nonprofit, which is Charleston Waterkeeper. So that's benefiting society in a, in a positive way. Uh, an example of environmental bottom line would be uh, Rep Your Water, who's also a, a client of mine, and uh, they've gone zero waste to landfill uh, at their headquarters, so they divert over 95% of their waste from the landfill, um, and have also offset 100% of their greenhouse gas emissions from their purchased electricity from their headquarters. Um, so the next question is, well, how does that translate into affecting your economic bottom line? And the way to, that it does translate is in the form of cost reductions, uh, in the form of increased sales, and also in the form of customer loyalty, which is a major KPI as, um, as we're starting to see some, some trends towards that, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so overall trends we're seeing, um, you know, climate change, our oceans are warming, and they're becoming more acidic. This is bad for all uh, marine species. Um, on the freshwater front, uh, we're seeing less snowpack and warmer stream temperatures, which is putting stress on all uh, cold water species. But we're also seeing um, a growing number of, uh, a trend and a growing number of conscious consumers. So they want to buy and support brands that align with their values. And um, we're also starting to see the very beginning of, uh, I think it's gonna be a carbon neutrality movement. Um, as we know that uh, climate change is affecting our fisheries. Uh, right now there's over 42 brands in the outdoor industry that have made a commitment to going carbon neutral. Um, so those are some just overall trends we're starting to see and sort of frame the context of this conversation. Um, so I will uh, introduce our panelists. I've got uh, Dr. Andy Danilchuk, who's the professor of fish conservation at UMass Amherst. Um, I've got Corinne Doctor, the co-owner of Repture Water, uh, Steve Hempkins, VP of Fly Fishing at Orvis, and Oliver White, owner of Abco and uh, Bears Lodge. So um, appreciate y'all being here today. All right, so first off, I thought I would uh, just ask the audience real quick by show of hands, you know, are, are you concerned about the impact that climate change is, is having on our fisheries? All right, so everyone in the room, so, so um, that's what, God, why didn't I like this everywhere? Um, but uh, so I thought I would also start the conversation off and, and with a little bit of science and um, ask Andy from a scientific perspective, you know, how is climate change impacting our fisheries. Yep, thanks, Rick. Um, so, I mean, the evidence that climate change is real is unequivocal, right? That uh, if you look at uh, global air temperatures, they've increased by one degree since the 80s. Uh, if we look at carbon emissions, uh, they continue to rise past a baseline that we've, that has been, you know, level for millennia until like the industrial revolution. And so things are warming. Um, at a very fast rate, uh, not only air temperature, but water temperatures. 
Um, and also tied with climate change, it's not just about warming, it's about extremes. It's about extreme droughts, it's about extreme flood events, it's about bigger hurricanes, bigger storms, and also about sea level rise. So it's all these things mixed together. It's not just, it, we, and I think we're, we, we get trapped sometimes because I think outside of this room and a lot of things that we teach our kids, it's like global warming, it's warming, it's warming. It's not just warming. Yes, it's warming, but there are other things that are happening. From a fish's perspective, 99.9% .9 of the fish are ectotherms. They're a product of their environment and temperature. Fish need water to live in and they, their metabolism is tied to water temperatures. So as water temperature increases, the metabolic costs increase, and thinking about what we do as anglers, we also try to catch them and, and they do get stressed out. So water temperature plays a big role in terms of thinking about how fish are responding to climate change. Um, the Thinking about um, the extreme events that we're trying to kind of combat and deal with in terms of things that are happening on the landscape or the seascape, that it's, it's, a, it's a very daunting issue, but it's one that we can chip away at in terms of individual behaviors, whether it's about how we practice catch and release or how we make decisions about how we vote or how we kick plastic and how we uh, modify our behaviors. So from a science perspective, it's there. Like we know climate change is happening. I know they're the climate change deniers. They're the ones that also think that the earth is flat. And you know, and, and I think that um, because of the evidence being there, that I think we as, a, as an industry have to take an evidence-based approach and think about how we can work within our little nodes and as individuals, as parts of networks in terms of our fishery, and as part of a broader community that includes the industry. And because recreational anglers look towards the industry for social norms, that I think that's why it's important that companies get on board. So I know that's a little bit beyond the science, but this we have to embrace the science to, in order to positively affect change and, and have that common language and that common voice behind the movement that climate change is real and that there are some things that we can do right now and also how that can have a cascading effect on, on the future. So. Right, and so just as a, something you mentioned about the, the science that is uh, interesting, um, you know, do you have any thoughts on how we can advance the topic of science behind climate change? Because <laughs> uh, it seems to be that even though it's abundantly clear with the science, we still have people who are willing to say that they're, they're not believing it. Yeah, so an approach I often take if I'm presenting in an audience where there are a lot of climate change deniers, I'm like, so do you acknowledge that the things are warming? Yes. Do you acknowledge that things are getting more severe? Yeah, yeah, things are getting more severe. Do you acknowledge that, well, like even if, it, even if, you, if it's not, in your mind, not human generated, there's still these things that are changing that we have to adapt to. Because we all have to be able to get and sit in the room to have the conversation as opposed to being polarized, right? And, and I think that, um, what I see from, you know, in terms of the scientific evidence, um, sure, there are, you know, climactic cycles that happened over, you know, millennia, but not an uptake like we've seen in terms of temperature, not an uptake that we've seen in, um, you know, sea level rise, excuse me, in carbon emissions. Um, you know, I think those, um, those, that evidence is there. And yeah. so, you know, yes, there are deniers, but 
you know, it's it's also about the critical mass, right? And I think we, we need to form that critical mass. Awesome. Um, all right, so switching over to Oliver, um, you know, you've uh, guided all over the world. Um, you have recently um, experienced a, a severe hurricane on Abaco. Um, but I, I guess my, my question is, aside from, from Abaco, I mean, are, are you seeing, um, or have you, have you witnessed firsthand experience um, of, of climate change effects on, on fisheries? Yeah, of course, right? I mean, always, just from, just like Andy said, it's all the extremes, man. It's the low water, it's the high water, it's the, you know, abnormal temperatures, early season, late season, you know, the extremes in the summer. I mean, it's the hoot owl closures all through Montana every summer. Yeah, almost everywhere you go, you're, you're watching an impact. I mean, it's unavoidable at this stage. Yeah. And, um, so we're starting to see that everywhere too. I mean, we see it in Charleston, especially the sea level rise. I think we're at like 58 days this year it, it flooded in Charleston, which is pretty significant increase compared to historic lows. So I think, I think everyone's starting to see that. Um, but from a from a business perspective, I wanted to um, ask Steve, you know, what are what are some of the the biggest risks uh, that you see that businesses face by not acting on climate? Well, obviously, if um, the fish can't live, um, the overall long-term viability of, of our sport, I mean, we can adapt and go fish for other things, but I mean, we really build this industry around certain species that we all like to chase and that we're projecting to um, our customers. And so I don't think it's overly um, dramatic to say that, uh, you know, the, the um, trajectory that we're on is going to be really challenging for many of us that work in the tackle, the business of providing tackle, providing experiences from an outfitting perspective as it becomes more difficult for um, species to adapt if their kind of ranges get reduced and, and that is going to have an impact because at the end of the day, kind of the tug is the drug, and there are a lot of other ways that people can go have an experience outside. And you know, the fish are a really critical part of, of the whole experience. Yeah, and 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 you mentioned some of the, the challenges, and um, you know, are y'all seeing? I guess, Corinne, I'll, I'll ask you: um, Are y'all are y'all facing challenges and communicating uh, climate change with your customers? And, and would you say that your your customers care? Um, I would say because of the way we've positioned ourselves of being very conservation and sustainable focused, if one of our customers has pushback, they shouldn't be our customer. And I'm very comfortable saying if we're not on the same page with this, then we shouldn't be in business together. And even that even goes for a direct customer. So we use our marketing platforms not just to communicate. We want you to buy our products but also these are our conservation partners these are initiatives that we believe in um, in working with Rick he helps us put together an annual sustainability report where we line up all of the things that um, we've done and then the data to back up why that's a good decision and we send that out to every single one of our um, customers via email 
and people read it and they write back and they say, I kind of knew you guys cared about conservation and all of that, but I had no idea how much. And it's an incredibly positive thing for us. So we don't see that negative side at all because people know that that's who we are. Right. And so that, that's one of the things that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is we, we start to see that trend. I mean, this is just an, a, a firsthand account example of it. It's not just, you can read a lot of reports. There's a lot of CSR reports out there that say, hey, you know, the overall trend is, is that, you know, consumers care, but to actually have a firsthand account, you actually see that. And in terms of, you know, what we track is, uh, I think, pretty, pretty evident. I was traveling, I think, People last year in Colorado had a tough year with fires. People in Montana have been having a tough year. Um, they may, folks don't want to go fly fishing in a, you know, when there's smoke around. And it is, I think, they associate a fire. They may not know that over on the other side of the divide or whatever else that everything's fine. See, there's fires in Colorado, there's fires in Montana. They may go somewhere else or they just choose not to go fishing and obviously some of these more extreme events that that we're having are even more challenging in terms of folks ability either literally or emotionally to kind of see themselves going out and being being outside and so as those extreme events whether it's fire it's low water closures the river's closed you can't go fishing um, there's there was a hurricane um, those are all bad for bad for business yeah and in, and in terms of you know so we're here talking about businesses fighting climate change right so um, Andy I wanted to, to ask you also um, you know what what do you see as some of the, the biggest obstacles um, that we face as an industry and, and as businesses in solving climate change yeah I think part of it is describing to consumers things that they can actually do. I mean, climate change, if you think like, we gotta stop climate change, they're like, oh my God, like it's a giant bus and how am I gonna step in front of the bus, right? And I think as, as, a, as individuals, as the industry, you know, to think about small little tangible things that people can do in terms of how they vote, how they use their dollars, how they make decisions uh, is important. And, you know, and we see this in terms of like, you know, compact fluorescents or LEDs or whatever in people's homes. They're already understanding that they can make sustainable decisions that affect their, uh, their, their, their bottom line at home. So the same thing has to happen, I think, in terms of the fishing industry and other industries too. And like providing ways that people can um, be sort of these catalysts for change in terms of their personal responsibilities of what they do on a daily basis and also then how they uh, make decisions about you know, who they buy from or um, who they vote for and, and not make it sound as if it's something that's so daunting that you end up breeding the sense of apathy. You know, climate change is so big, well, how, what am I gonna do? What's my role in this? I, I can't stop climate change. It's, 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 you know, it's all depends on you know, government regulations or other things that you gotta, there's part of that sort of like that introspectiveness, like living that examined life, it's tough. Right? I, my example is like when my in-laws come and visit, like I end up going and fishing cardboard out of the garbage bag, right? Because they recycle at home and they know where their recycling bin is home, but they don't know where their recycling bin is in my house. So I go and I open the garbage and I'm like, okay, well that has to go in the recycling. And I don't call them out on it. I just go and do it. I clean up the mess, right? 
and I helped take up that personal responsibility. And I think it, I think part of it's putting the um, you know putting the weight back on the industry a little bit, as setting a really good example, but providing these tangible ways that anglers, people that are that the consumers can make a difference and make it apparent, and and also even being able to calculate you know how much of a change in their behavior is going to mean uh, you know a positive effect towards fighting climate change or making sure that. You know, it turns back to um, ultimately preserve their experience when they're on the river or on the flats. All right, thanks for that. And Can I piggyback on that? Yeah, please do. <laughs> um, I love hearing that from you too because that's one thing that I preach to all my friends that have nothing to do with a really outdoorsy lifestyle is think about what change you can make. And sometimes I need to tell them one thing they can do, but it's little things. It's don't use Ziploc bags, get reusable ones. And it seems so simple to those of us who interact with that every day. Um, but having really tangible, this is the one little piece you can do. And sometimes it's dumpster diving. I do a lot of that myself. Um, but my father-in-law lives with me, so I do lecture him. <laughs> and, well, I still lecture my in-laws. Oh, yeah, know. about his trash habits. Um, but it's having those really tangible things, and you have to just look at your situation of what you can do. We lease our facility, so we can't put solar panels like our friends at Anglers All did here in Denver. Um, but we can go carbon neutral by purchasing renewable energy certificates. Um, and so you just kind of have to look at what it is that you can do, check it off the list, pass it on, make sure everybody else is doing it because you need something that you feel like you're making a difference, and it will. And, and I think we've lost that whole sentiment that one person can make a difference. Well, one person can make a difference if lots of other people are also having that mentality, right? And, they, and then all of a sudden you've got that critical mass for change. And I think that, you know, it comes up when we have these big daunting issues like climate change, right? It's huge. And it seems like that it's like big elephant in the room that we're, we're never going to move. But uh, we, we can't, we, we, we lose the fight if all of a sudden we don't provide people with enough resources that it breeds that sense of apathy, right? And I get this from my students. I teach 140 students every fall in fish conservation. And the, 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 the way I have the course structured, it's like the first module is all about fish plus water. Like how did that all work? And the second module is adding humans and it's super depressing. It's about commercial fishing and recreational fishing and pollution and invasive species and all that stuff. And after that module, all the students are like, how can you still do this? <laughs> this sucks, I'm so depressed. Like humans are really nasty on the planet screwing things up. And then the third module is all about solutions for sustainability. It's like, here's how we can make incremental changes. Here are case studies. Here's our examples. And by the end, they realize that, you know, even if they walk away from the course and they never do anything with fish conservation ever again, they realize that as how they make a single decision about who they vote for or what they buy or, you know, how they interface with nature, that that's going to be a, a positive, right? Well, I think an interesting part of, of what you're talking about is sharing success stories and, and um, not, you know, getting too down on yourself about, hey, we can't do anything about this. And I'll, I love the story of Oliver at, um, when y'all kicked plastic at your lodge and 
you know, that's a great story, but it also had a, a pretty significant impact, uh, you know, on your economic bottom line too. And we're still doing the right thing environmentally. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, of course. So uh, Rick came and did a sustainability analysis for our business, and we had lots of goals, but one of the easiest things was to kick plastic. We already had a reverse osmosis UV water purification system, um, but kind of Americans are ingrained when you're traveling, you should always drink bottled water. And so we had a hard time getting people away from that. And uh, we went totally plastic free. We put in like water bottle stations. We invested money in like Yeti bottles and high quality stuff. So people felt more comfortable with it to help get the buy-in. But between the two lodges on a given year, we used roughly 100,000 plastic bottles a year you know, at a cost of 17 cents each. So that's 17 grand that we would spend every year on bottled water that we no longer had to spend and can reinvest that money back into good products. And then the excess of that, we moved forward to other sustainability initiatives to kind of keep moving the company forward to be reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but also become more profitable. Yeah, and, and on that, I mean, I, I know that y'all had done some of this, um, Y'all had done like a, a lighting upgrade and things of that nature that help to reduce your energy demand. That's one of the easiest things that every business can do, right? They can, um, and it's and it's easy. I mean, you're, it's a lighting retrofit. It's switching from a CFL or to LED, um, and that's automatically going to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, but ultimately save you money. Um, yeah, we changed all our bulbs and we also put everything on timers so you don't have to like remember to turn things on and off and so like the pool would come on and off by itself, all the outdoor lights would come on and off by themselves. Uh, yeah, the, you know, the whole combination of little steps all adds up. Yep, and, and so on, on the same note in terms of, you know, what steps are you taking, um, Steve? I know Orvis has uh, taken some steps, especially as it relates to uh, energy usage and, and things of that nature. I was wondering, um, what are what are uh, you know how y'all made the business case I guess for for fighting climate change but also for sustainability well, in terms of the electricity consumption and conversion to LEDs and and it's kind of like a no-brainer we save a lot we saved a lot of money and we re reduced our consumption in the past ten years about 54 percent in our warehouse we're a big company we have a big footprint in terms of our energy consumption and we said we were going to do this i had kind of forgotten about the effort until getting ready for this and you know we we, we made real like and it wasn't something that was like cascaded down from on high we set some goals about that and people took some ownership in it it always helps in a business when there's a you know a quick payback that sustains long term and so you know that that's a big one um, and it's not just inside we, re we recently put LED lights in the parking lots or flagship store of the rod shop of, of our headquarters um, we we have some solar panels on our roof it only accounts for about 10% of our consumption for for that building but all that adds up in terms of hundreds of thousands of kilowatt hours per year that are saved um, in terms of consumption and then that translates to um, money that we would have spent otherwise that we can do towards other things. And so to build on what Oliver said, I think you, know, you need to set some goals 
um, and then work towards those goals, measure against them. Um, unnecessarily identifying easy, easy wins, but things that people can wrap their head around because success genders buy-in, buy-in engenders momentum and pride of ownership. And Kick Plastic is, is an area where we, we had a lot of success. We worked with Costa to launch Kick Plastic within the outfitting our community at our guide rendezvous a couple years ago. Um, the event went plastic free the next year. We had Leah from Kick Plastic come and talk to the outfitters. And last week I was in Montana with pro outfitters bird hunting and the entire lodge is plastic free. The guides all have reusable water bottles and, and, and that happened relatively, it's all happened over the, the past couple of years and there are a lot of other examples of that. We brought that home to our, um, to our corporate office. If you were a guest of Orvis, come in, you get a um, reusable cup um, for the day and then that reinforces to the associates at, at Orvis and you bring that home when you're talking to your kids and so I think that is a an example of something two things that you can do is focus on your your lighting and and think about kind of the stuff that you're 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 consuming is, is things to kind of start on that journey yeah yeah and I, and I agree and I, and I think it's you know grabbing that low-hanging fruit in terms of Hey, what you know? What can we do right now? And that's something that I always recommend with with any clients is you know you want to start with what you can control first, right? Because if I was to tell you right now, I want hey everyone, you're going to dive deep into your supply chain tomorrow, you would be completely freaked out, and and you wouldn't do you wouldn't do any sustainability initiatives because it's it's complex and it's complicated. But the uh, I think part of, uh, of what everyone here is, is demonstrating is that you start with what you can control first and make an impact, and whether that's kicking plastic, eliminating waste, um, LED, things of that nature, um, that, that's really critically important. What, what's your 97 percent? 97 diverted from landfill. 90, yeah, 97% of waste diverted from landfill. And the way that that translates into fighting climate change and using your business as a uh, implementing a sustainable business model is that instead of them having to haul that to a landfill and the emissions associated with actually hauling that much waste because there's weight to it, right? Um, they're refusing it at the, at the beginning. They're composting. They're recycling. Um, so it 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 the the kick plastic component and the waste component is really very much wrapped up into the climate change and we were I thought I was pretty proud of Orvis that we got an 86 percent in terms of our waste stream and through reducing paper consumption upcycling pallets again we've got a big a, a, a big scale e-waste batteries like all the scanners in the warehouse have batteries and making sure that those get recycled scrap metal from you know, the, the strapping on pallets and all the different things, bailing plastic. Um, there are three tons of pant trimmings from Hemming that we kind of donate that get upcycled or repurposed. And so those are some things that we've done. We're in Vermont, so it's easy to, to compost. We don't have to, but, but we do. And so that ends up diverting a couple tons of food scraps and food waste. and paper towels that would otherwise go in a landfill, they'd off-gas 
methane. So those are, I think, some of the things that you can um, start to, to lean into, and it's not as easy in some places as it is in, in, in others, but you can you know, start on that journey. Well, I think uh, you know Oliver can probably um, speak to this better than I can, but you know that was one of the interesting things that I just had no idea. Like these islands in the Bahamas, <clears throat> they don't have anywhere to recycle any of that stuff. That, that waste has nowhere to go, um, which is which is pretty wild. And so um, I did want to just shift gears a, a little bit on, on yeah. that. So yes, we had so Rick dug through all our trash, <laughs> which is part of what he does when it comes to your business, and. 35% of all of our trash was beer bottles. And glass is like the easiest thing in the world to recycle, except in the Bahamas where it just doesn't happen. And uh, it took me about 18 months, but I got, there. there's two breweries in the Bahamas, and I got one of them to agree to send a container to Abaco, and they were going to let me fill the container with my empty bottles for the whole year, and then ship it back in the exchange for me doing all of my business for them with them, and like not buying the other beer. And so we had all that set up pre-hurricane. But like just a simple conversation like that with a brewery locally who is willing to make the initiative, you know, cuts our trash emission by 35%, uh, you know, with really simple things of, you know, just a conversation with your local business partners of what you can do. And, and I think that kind of brings up a, what I think is an interesting point in, in terms of what are some of the common misconceptions um, that people have about sustainability. There's this automatic thing when you talk about sustainability and people are like, oh, it's gonna cost more. You know, that's just an added cost and it's not, it's not worthwhile. And, you know, we're, we're demonstrating here that you're, you're, you're cutting costs, you're reducing energy usage, you're fighting climate change, you're reducing waste. And those are all stories that are very marketable to consumers. Um, that it, when you tell that story, it resonates with them and they want to stay more loyal to your brand. Um, and we, we've certainly seen that um, with, with Rector Water too. Yeah. I also think it even goes down to like what you, I mean, thinking about that, that the, the land and the water is all connected, right? Water flows downhill. And so thinking about what even happens on the land in terms of food production, where you're sourcing your food, if you've got a cafeteria in your factory or whatever, where you're sourcing that food coming, where, you know, can you grow some of it even seasonally? Um, can you use drip irrigation and capture rainwater? I mean, that was one thing. I lived in the Bahamas for 10 years, and you know, it took a long time for us to shift away. We had we built buildings and we built cisterns underneath, and so we captured rainwater. But we went into the communities, and people were drifting away from do, using cisterns and going to the, the 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 town water because it was a status symbol. It was like, well, we don't need cisterns anymore because now we can tap into the the RO plant. Well, you know, whereas actually the opposite's better, right? If you can capture that cistern and, and save some of your own water, then you can use that for irrigation. But, and I think that goes into like maybe reminding people in, in it where there is that interconnection between what goes on in the water, what goes on on land, and even some of the basic decisions of, of where we get our food from and how that ties into um, things that happen. You know, I mean, these companies have big footprints. Um, and, and thinking about the, the subtle things that we can demonstrate that other people can kind of pick up on. So, yeah. um, so Corinne, I wanted to, um, if you could elaborate a little bit on how Repture Water is, is really, because this is about making the business case for sustainability, right? And if you could elaborate on that, that would be, I think, beneficial. 
Yeah, um, we have data that we can tap into in our online store. You can run a report, say who's a returning customer, who is new, who's like how long have they been here, all of that. Um, and we've seen an increase of 55% of our customer loyalty. We've always had a lot of return customers, but once we started marketing and making sure people knew what we stood for and these actionable steps that we say we're doing and we're very transparent, like this is exactly what we're doing. Once we started marketing it, we saw a 55% increase um, in our customer loyalty on just direct customers. And then just through anecdotal evidence and conversations uh, with my retailers, it matters to them as well. And it's um, it's kind of like, I of course can't think of the word right now, but it's like that chain effect where they see what we're doing and they want to do better. So I've had conversations with multiple retailers that say, okay, I see that you said you do this, um, now I want to do that. And it's sort of that just keeps spreading the word and um, it's good for us because if they like what I'm doing, they obviously still want to sell my products. Um, and then also for our direct customers, there's not a single, even like you could call it a negative interaction when maybe we shipped the wrong thing to a customer and they're almost apologizing and they're like, well, I just love you and I love everything that you stand for, but I really wanted the brook trout hat, not the brown trout hat. <laughs> like, yeah, you should get what you ordered. <laughs> like even those types of interactions include that anecdotal, um, almost like a thank you for doing what we are doing. Well, and I think that's part of the, you know, it's like this in sustainable business, it's, you know, you call it doing well by doing good and, and having that positive um, effect. And um, Steve, what, what would you say or um, in terms of what Orvis is doing or, or um, some positive success stories that, that have, really, have, have come out of some of your sustainability initiatives? I would say in terms of like we're relatively early on in our sustainability journey, I think the fact that we've, we're continuing to own kind of our footprint yep. and that we've made real progress and are making progress from an energy efficiency and waste stream perspective, yep. like I'm really excited about this, this next chapter for, for Orvis where we're focused more on our, on our supply chain. And, and really owning the inputs and the, the outputs and the, the energy intensity of, of raw material production, whether it's, whether it's grown or it's, it's extracted, thinking about chemistry, um, all the different things that, that go into the point where a good is delivered in, in our warehouse and, and walking the talk more there, um, you know, proud of the, the use of recycled materials, the insulation package and in and, and our new high-end insulation um, has, has that story. It's not, you know, an end in, in itself, sure. the production of the original material use resources, but it's at least prolonged, you know, instead of being linear from kind of coming out of the ground and going back in the ground, it, at least has some circularity and, and a longer a longer life. Yeah, and I think that's 
Probably the biggest takeaway that, that in, in, in working with, with clients is to understand that this is not a flip the switch deal. This is not like, hey, well, we signed up and we're going to be sustainable and we're going to do that and at the end of the year we're, you know, we're going to have no impact. It's just, that, that's not possible. It is absolutely a journey and you start with grabbing the low-hanging fruits and then you start incorporating things like recycled materials, start looking into your supply chain and your products. And the way that that really affects climate change is you're not using virgin materials because there's embodied energy and there's embodied water and products. Um, so when you use something that's recycled, that embodied energy hasn't gone to waste. You're not starting from something virgin. And so um, those are all positive steps um, from packaging. From packaging as well. Yeah, 40, that's a big one. In prepping for this, 42% of all logging goes into packaging, which ultimately ends up in a landfill. Anyway, there's a lot of different things. And we're starting to hear from our associates. We have our own retail stores. We solicit feedback, anonymous feedback. And we're hearing, you know, um, a discomfort or looking for us to um, think about how the goods are delivered to them because they're taking all these shirts and stuff out of plastic bags and then they go into a dump. They go into a trash bag and then they go into a dumpster and they aren't bailing that they may not have municipal recycling for those sorts of things and so those are some of the the areas i think that 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 we're focused on and and seeking either um materials that we're using in, in our products that have some certification blue sign they're, they're recycled so that we at least know, even if the product itself and not every piece of the supply chain is perfectly buttoned up, knowing that from a chemistry production kind of integrity perspective, the stuff that is going into the product is, you know, has some some level, baseline level of, of integrity. Yep. I think the other thing is we're working towards establishing our, uh, what our carbon, footprint is and then you know using that to set some goals and start to act against that yeah and, that, and that's the thing and when, when when you're talking about setting um, carbon goals like if you were to go carbon neutral it's all about if here's our goal you know and this is no pun intended this is what it's called is you know it's called backcasting because then you're okay well what steps do we need to take to achieve that end goal of going carbon neutral and so all of these things add up whether it's uh, kicking plastic, whether it's uh, reducing energy consumption, recycling, um, you know, uh, doing a vegetable garden, composting, you know, all of these steps actually add up and make an impact. Um, but I think the, for me, the the, the takeaways I do want to be cognizant of everyone's time because it's happy hour, and I'm sure everyone's like, could you, could we wrap this up and ready for a beer? Um, <laughs> but I think that the, the takeaway for, for me anyway, and from what I'm hearing from what y'all have done, uh, which I commend all, all of y'all for doing, um, is that it's not only the right thing to do, but there is a legitimate business case in the terms of cost savings, in the terms of customer loyalty, in the terms of mitigating risk. If you're a, a business in this industry, uh, to, you have to mitigate the risk of, 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 our, of your impact on climate change, um, but also using it to drive innovation. Um, attracting and retaining talent at, at, at your companies. And those are the things that um, sustainable business models uh, demonstrate time and time again. And I think you'll, you'll continue to, to see that. So 
Um, I would like to thank uh, everyone for, for your time today, um, for showing, uh, ho hopefully demonstrating that, that sustainable business works. And um, yeah, I'd like to just take a little time in case anyone has any questions in, in the audience. He wants yeah. to know what we're doing yeah, packaging-wise. Yeah, so one thing is because I crabbed enough, um, our main Brimtap factory has switched all of their poly bags to recycled content. Um, and one of the big problems, especially because we are a little guy, we don't have the Orvis footprint, um, is I have to just beg and beg and beg and beg and beg, and they're like, yeah, the minimums on that is 200,000 bags. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. But if the whole factory switches everything over, boom, like done. And that's a lot of other companies that are impacted on that. Rick and I have this conversation about polybags all the time where it's a necessary evil right now. We haven't found a different solution because if you do not protect the product, then you're wasting all the materials that went into that product. Like I can't put a shirt in my dusty warehouse and expect someone to want it after sitting in dust forever, you know? So um, that's one thing. And then we also use all recycled void fill. Um, so even we make glassware and we use the, it's called green wrap or eco wrap. It's a recycled paper product that's supposed to mimic bubble wrap. So like I will find it in a recycled material or I will make someone make it for me. But there are options available, and, and there's you're starting to see increasing numbers of, of, of options. Uh, especially packaging's a big one, and whoever solves the poly bag problem is going to make a boatload of money. Can I give a shout out to a, another company that's not even here? Uh, eco products are not eco, well. Eco products is great, but uh, Eco Enclose is a packaging. It's a sustainable packaging company, and they're based here in Colorado. Um, so we get all of our shipping packaging from them and void fill and all of that stuff. Cool. Eco and close. So there's a solution if you're looking for packaging. <laughs> Tell them Corinne sent you a number. All right. Anything else? Well, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate uh, y'all carving out some, some time out of your day to talk about sustainable business. If you have any questions or would like to discuss how we can implement some uh, sustainable solutions uh, at your company, I'm happy to have that conversation with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. Um, for previous episodes and to stay current with new episodes, um, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. And uh, don't forget to give us a like, follow, or, or a share. That helps us out a lot. And I uh, hope you have a great day.